There are times in pop culture history when we see things happen at such an enormous rate that at the time you don't understand the magnitude until much later. The music scene in 1990 was beginning to change. The 80s were loosely based on life being one big party with lyrics about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and it had begun to wear out its welcome. Coming in at the end of the 80s, a new crop of musicians and styles which were more thought-provoking with deeper context emerged. But that's not to say that the 80s bands weren't still pulling their weight in the 90s. In fact, many were, and as we'll see in this episode tonight, they were selling more records than they ever had before. 1991. That's a particular year of incredible music. Now, don't cheat and ask Google, because I'm really excited to remind you exactly how amazing 1991 was. It marks the changing of the guard. But in this episode, it's not really about grunge taking over, though it's impossible not to have that conversation here. Certainly, the music landscape change is one for another more detailed episode that we'll have later. This episode is about the 12 greatest months of music history, January 1991 through December 1991. What we are going to discover here is going to leave your head shaking in disbelief. Not only did you live through some of the greatest times in music history, but that you did it at the speed of light. Welcome to 21 Years. I'm your host, Sam El Dangeroso, Master of the Gooniverse. And this episode is the 12 greatest months in music history. This is one you do not want to miss. I never really realized how amazing 1991 really was, and it took me about 40 years to really realize it. See, I'm not a trivia guy who stores worthless dates and like information in his head. I have a guy that does that. His name's Carl. But I do remember periods of time, and as much as I love the 80s, the 90s are right there with it. See, I graduated high school in the mid-90s, which I think it's the peak of everyone's younger memories, you know, high school. Some people loved it and some people hated it. I hated the beginning, but grew to love the end of high school. I can honestly say my last two years of high school are some of the best memories that I actually have. I firmly believe the 16 to 18 year old range is the peak of most everyone's pop culture timeline. I mean, if you kind of think about it, you have freedom to travel around. You earn your own money, so you buy things that you want. You get a job, you meet friends at the mall, you know, whatever. The last two years of high school is where your pop culture meter seems to hit the 12 o'clock noon position. You just have more options, more choices, more freedom, your own money. And you go barely through remembering anything as a baby to suddenly remembering everything about the 80s as a kid if you were a Generation Xer. So you kind of go through the 90s on a blissful wave of young adulthood, only to feel that everything is sinking by the turn of the century. You move on trying to stay 21 as long as you can, and because of that, a lot of things in your memory banks start to get a little dusty. So if I tell you that 1991 was one of the greatest times of musical history, you'd probably forgotten just how big it was. So like, when I say big, I really mean like, oh my god, gargantuan. 
1991 was a time of change, though. But we hadn't fully committed to the change yet. I was 13, and I hadn't really sold my soul to the CD just yet. I was still, in essence, buying tapes because not only were they cheaper, but I was always late to significant technological changes. Sadly, I kind of still am. The price for CDs and CD players was just too high in the 80s, and I was setting my ways with the cassette. And I thought they kind of could coexist in harmony. Of course, I was wrong. Uh, 1991 is just important for so many reasons. One is that the CD kind of took over the cassette and sales around this time. And we're right at the beginning of the Discman being in almost every car and on every kid's hip. It took me many years to give in to CD, and I held out until around 1994 when I had to accept the tape was going to pasture. It was a really tough day for me, i got to be honest with you. The other thing is that pop culture was drastically changing. We were seeing it everywhere. Not only were our products changing, like soft drink slogans and commercials, but we were kind of getting pushed to know more about the world around us, and MTV was one of those pushers that were the most aggressive with it. Videos were changing from long-haired rockers dancing on elaborate stages with fire and smoke, driving fast cars with their arms around models, to guys with ripped cargo shorts, hiking boots, and button-down flannels, talking about abuse, suicide, and drug addiction. The shift was too fast for a lot of us, and I remember wanting to cling to the hair metal a little longer before being forced to end the party so soon. Let's be honest, though, many of us just weren't ready to let the good times go yet. There were a few indicators that happened. Promotional posters at the music stores began to change. Motley Crue was replaced with Pearl Jam on the walls. We were moving on from Leather and Mullets, <laughs> I should call a band that, Leather and Mullets, to High Top Doc Martens and Cargo Shorts. I have to say, though, I first kind of noticed things change while going to a Van Halen concert in 1991. Van Halen was one of the few bands still hanging on, and in the 90s, they were still doing pretty big business. In Van Halen fashion, they had somehow magically still been relevant with their song right now. I don't know if you guys remember that in the Pepsi commercials. That was kind of a new generation thing. It felt like a call to awareness in some way. I'm not saying they shouldn't have been relevant still. I mean, to me, Van Halen should never not be relevant, actually. They are the greatest American rock band of all time, in my opinion. But during that concert for Van Halen, it was the opening act that really made me take notice. Alice in Chains had opened for Van Halen on their tour for that album for Unlawful Car Knowledge, which was released in 1991, oddly. Immediately, you notice a complete mood change with this band as they open their set. They weren't going to party like an 80s band. Hell, they weren't even at the party. They wanted to sing about the drug addictions that resulted from the party. The band was actually pretty amazing. The musicians were top-notch, and their lead singer, Lane Staley, was unique and personal. Alice in Chains ended their set with a song called The Real Thing. It's a song about the beginning phases of heroin addiction, with lyrics like, quote, Under the hill with just a few notches on my belt, end quote, and, quote, The doctor said, son, you're going to be a new man. I said, thank you very much, and can I borrow 50 bucks, end quote. As a contradiction, Van Halen would play 30 minutes later, opening with a song called Pound Cake, <laughs> a song about the anatomy of a woman you have sex with. If this doesn't give you a great example of the confusion of the 90s, uh, I don't know what will. 
Later, though, we would discover how important Alice in Chains would be as they were kind of the first grunge band, that's what the music business was calling this sound, to make it out of Seattle and open the door for Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Nirvana. And if there was ever a band I think deserves more credit, it's Alice in Chains, who had a long career with bouts of addiction and finally death. But that's something I may actually do a story on as well soon. It'll probably be into the um, whole grunge and transformation of music 1990 episode that we do. Um, But we're again not talking about the shift in music so much because... As I said, one day I'm going to do an episode on that. That's going to be completely dedicated to it. But, you know, we have to still remember the importance of the reference of the shift of music culture in 1991. Uh, This episode's really about the actual music and how 12 months in 1991 changed the landscape of music history forever. 1990 wasn't really too huge of a year of music. You could argue that there are some gems in there, and there are for sure. But in comparison, it's kind of non-existent. 1992 also had some absolute great albums, maybe even one of the greatest albums ever made. But they were really more of a country rap kind of thing. And in this episode, we're going to focus mostly on rock. 1991 stands alone when it comes to rock releases because the albums in that 12-month period are not only incredible releases, but many are on the greatest albums of all time list. I'd also like to kind of reference here that when we talk about greatest albums of all time, I wanted to use one specific list, and it's a generic one. It's the Rolling Stone greatest, you know, albums of all time, and it just is a reference for all of them. I did all these out. A lot of these albums are going to be on specific greatest albums of all time list. And I really wasn't looking for that. I was looking for a very broad, generic versus all albums list and Rolling Stones seem to have the best one. So as we go forward and we're talking about this album's on the greatest albums of all time, it's it's gonna be basically off of Rolling Stones, which is just this basic, you know, median measurement over all albums. So it's not because particularly that I love Rolling Stone or I believe that their lists are great. In fact, a lot of times I just can't believe some of their lists, but it's just a good reference point to kind of find that medium ground that these are on the same list. That's a pretty broad list of, I think they have 500 of the greatest albums of all time. And, um, you know, in 1991 February, we're going to kick it off with a release that wasn't really a great album, but the release of Queen's last album with Freddie Mercury happens here, and it should be an honorable mention. Now, I don't have to tell you the importance of this release. It's well known at the time that Freddie Mercury, the singer of Queen, of course, had contracted the HIV virus and thus was basically dying. The album Innuendo would go on to be the last album we heard as a new studio album from the Queen's true original lineup, including Mercury. The reviews were kind of mediocre, and it, uh, honestly, it's the last album from a singer who I consider the greatest rock singer of all time, but is it the greatest Queen album Not by a long shot, but I think it's an honorable mention in 1991 in these 12 months just because it's a significant album that's important in rock history, uh, being that it's Freddie Mercury's last studio album. And after that, we're going to move into March 1991. And I'm going to tell you a lot of, I think it's important to explain that if an album's not on the 
greatest album of all time list, why it's a significant album, because all the albums I'm going to give you sold multiple millions of copies in this 12-month period. So we're going to talk a little bit about who it was, what the album was, why it's important, and how, you know, some background story on it. So our first real one, it comes in March 91, of course, REM releases Out of Time, which includes the songs Losing My Religion and Shiny Happy People. Now, that album would go on to sell over 20 million copies and win three Grammys. It's also listed in Time Magazine's 100 Greatest Albums of All Times. Out of Time was really a significant album because it transformed the band. And it went through a transformation period. It's R.E.M. becoming the R.E.M. we know and remember. When you ask when did R.E.M. get so huge, this is the album you point to. Though it's not the greatest album of all time and it's not on the list, it's important that the band's history, which would later produce albums that would be included in many of the greatest albums lists like Automatic for the People, and all that doesn't happen without a, out of time here in 1991. So this album brings in a tremendous amount of popularity to R.E.M. It puts them in a major mainstream role. And a lot of these albums are going to do this. So they're going to push bands that you know now uh, by name. These, these albums in 1991 are a lot of the works that got them into that position. And uh, it just gets thicker and thicker from here, friends, because... We're going to go into the summer of 1991, and that's when things begin to really shift at a subsonic, almost nuclear effect on how the music gets shaped. And one of those albums that is very influential in that is the album Gish by the Smashing Pumpkins. Big fuzz rock guitars, thundering drums, whining vocals, all that became their staple for the next 30 years. The album was loved by critics and today considered a top 35 album by Rolling Stone and sold over 1 million copies despite only having 10 songs. Like R.E.M., Gish signifies the changing of the guard for Smashing Pumpkins. And believe it or not, it only had a budget of $20,000. Gish was loved by fans and critics, which set the stage for my personal favorite album, Siamese Dream in 1993. Gish was an amazing album that blazed trails for bands and for years to come. It's a really significant album. And although we're talking a little bit about the alternative stuff, I want to say here, too, that metal is still very popular in 1991 and wouldn't really fall to the rocks below until maybe 92 when rap becomes a big deal. Um, and there's some really bad releases from from like uh, glam metal bands that were still trying to make a living. But both metal acts like Van Halen, despite their success in pop, and Skid Row both held strong in 1991 with their album releases. I told you earlier that the album that I remember going to the concert for was For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge. That would sell over 3 million albums and win a Grammy. And Skid Row's Slave to the Grind would sell over 2 million albums and would debut number one on Billboard's Top 200, which is a huge deal for a very heavy metal act or heavy rock act of the time, proving that at least for the next 12 months, you metalheads still have something to celebrate here, and it's still a staple in popular music. But see, we're going to move to the granddaddy of them all when we talk about metal albums. Because in August of 91, 
Metallica's Black Album, Solidifies Metal, was here to stay with an incredible 30 million copies sold on that album. Considered in several trade lists as one of the greatest albums of all time, songs like Sad But True, Wherever I May Roam, Enter Sandman, Unforgiven, that's just naming a few, and winning numerous awards. The album was a huge success, and it was so huge that eight years later, it won an award for Album of the Year because it was re-released. The Black Album is known for a shift in Metallica's songwriting and their structure of songs, which were tighter and shorter, which made them more radio and MTV friendly, to be honest with you. But here's the truth that makes all really like hardcore Metallica fans ill and sick to their stomach. It made Metallica the biggest band of all time going forward. The album solidified their place in rock supremacy, really. Metallica had finally come to mainstream radio with this album. It's a classic that has many songs played in social gatherings by even non-metal heads like college football stadiums. So Metallica's Black is officially the first album on our 1991 list that is listed as one of the greatest albums of all time, officially. And you may say, well, you know, we're already into the summer of 1991. We're already in the summer, El Dangeroso. Can't be more coming my way, can there? Oh, sit back and relax, because there's a lot more coming your way just in this year of 1991. Because also in August... Music wasn't done yet when Pearl Jam released 10 as their debut album. Again, this album lands on several lists as one of the greatest albums of all time, selling over 30 million copies worldwide. 10 produced hit songs like Alive, Even Flow, and Jeremy, which accompanied very artistic music videos. 10 won four MTV Music Video Awards. 10 brought serious imagery and topics to the forefront of the music. Topics like homelessness and school shootings would now be at the forefront of rock music. In many ways, it's my opinion that 10 changed the landscape of music more than Nevermind actually did. Not lyrically or culturally, but in musicianship and songwriting. 10 was helped tremendously by MTV as executives at the network noticed the movement towards what was labeled as alternative was coming along. Music was going more grassroots in many ways, you know, the whammy bars on guitars that Eddie Van Halen played and wailed on were kind of being replaced by the more classic styles of the 70s, like the Les Paul and bedrooms across the country. 10 is often or overshadowed, but its importance is that it strikes first at the change coming. The music was raw, Gone were dive bombs and pink guitars and wild pink hair. Coming were social wear lyrics and stripped down rock sounds that were more Neil Young than it was Poison. And it doesn't end here. Again, we're going to talk about an icon at this point, which is Ozzy Osbourne, who also releases No More Tears in August, which would go on to be Ozzy's second highest selling album of all time following his debut selling 8 million copies. After 12 albums, many people consider No More Tears to be Ozzy's greatest album. I personally do. Think about that. Ozzy goes solo in 1979, and in 1991, after five albums into his career, he wrote one of the best well-received and highest-selling rock albums of all times. And this is 20 years into his solo career, right? I mean, No More Tears brings Ozzy into the mainstream as an act and a musician. 
he became a pop icon because of No More Tears. He gets his own reality show, is invited to the White House under the Bush administration. It's all pretty remarkable. And that's going to really be on the tail end of Guns N' Roses releasing a double album set. You heard me right. Metallica, Ozzy Osbourne, Pearl Jam. Now we're talking about Guns N' Roses. They release a double album set, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, which is significant because this would be the last album with all the main original lineup there. I mean, I think they're missing one or two guys. I know they had switched drummers at the time, but most of the original lineup is here on these two albums. Both albums sold a combined 35 million worldwide and feature some of the band's best work, like Civil War, which I think is such a relevant song today, and I think it's an amazing composition. Um, Double Talking Jive, You Could Be Mine, I mean, heavier songs, November Rain, of course, is on these albums. The two albums win four awards from various academies for best albums of the year. This, of course, would be their last studio album as the original lineup as... We know Axl Rose would originally take would officially take the band into a different kind of direction where he was the only original member anymore and would do uh, the album Chinese Democracy. And I want to say here that I finally did get to listen to Chinese Democracy a couple of years ago after kind of forgetting that it was coming out. You know, I think that whole sh- that whole charade went on so long that no one knew when Chinese Democracy was actually going to be released. And so when it was... After so many years of waiting, I think time had passed. I mean, he releases this album at a, a you know in a digital age that was not the time of Guns N' Roses. Things had changed so much that I think Chinese Democracy got buried. But I wanted to say that there's a lot of songs on Chinese Democracy that I think are pretty brilliant, actually. I think there's some really great songs on there. Some I'm not crazy about, but um, I think if they'd have been Guns N' Roses, original lineup Guns N' Roses songs, they would have been way, way, way more um, celebrated than they were without the original members and it just being Axl Rose. So just for reference there. And the next month, we're going to move into September. It was kind of a huge month for 1991 as well, as we saw releases from three monumental albums in September. Bad Motor Finger by Soundgarden was the first to be released and features songs like Outshined and Rustic Cage. And like many of these albums we said, this album put Soundgarden on the map in the mainstream, and they sold over 2 million albums with this. This album, by many people, is considered the best Soundgarden album that they've ever done because it gave them access to radio play and regular rotation. And listen, on the, on the heels of Bad Motor Finger was Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I almost get excited telling you guys this because it's just so much fun. It's the second album on the list of Rolling Stone's greatest albums of all time. Spin Magazine's greatest albums of all time and Slap and Pop's most essential records of all times. Selling over 10 million albums is one of the most influential records in music. Now many say, and I think it's very fair, that after 11 albums and almost 40 years together, with over 80 million records sold, that the Red Hot Chili Peppers could be considered the greatest American band of all time. But whether you believe that or don't believe that, I think there's a little bit too much California lyric in there for me to consider them the greatest, although I love the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and I, I mean, I mean, for as long as they've lasted, um, it's, it's amazing. Um, and I do feel like they get better and better and better. 
But um, none of that happens without Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Their album quality and song quality improves by leaps and bounds after the success of Blood Sugar Sex Magic. This album changed them as a band to become part of a new mainstream. It's undeniable that, again, love or hate them, Blood Sugar Sex Magic is an essential album for people who are interested in alternative music because it's so different. To me, the Red Hot Chili Peppers had always done some kind of punk funk, uh, which I know is a weird way of saying it. They always did like a punk funk. It was a really simple you know, chord progressions with funky bass and drums behind it. And, you know, usually rapping uh, from Anthony Kiedis. But, and we still hear that in Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Don't get me wrong. The the staples are still there. However, there's some amazing, beautiful frame uh, work by Prashante and, and uh, Flea um, in this album. They work, there's some beautiful stuff here. I think it's such an undeniable record that you, you have to give it so much credit. And some people will consider this the greatest album of the 90s. And it, and it very well could be in the argument, for sure. But a lot of people are going to argue this next album in September 1991 um, is the greatest album of the 90s. And that's going to be Nirvana's Nevermind. Selling over 30 million albums. Nevermind marked a huge generational shift in music similar to the rock and roll explosion of like the 50s and the end of the baby boomer generation's dominance of musical direction never mind came exactly at the right time um, this was music by for and about a whole new group of young people who had been overlooked ignored and are condescended to Nevermind would go on to win four awards with various academies and serve on every list of the greatest albums of all time, usually within the top 10 overall. And 2017 Smells Like Teen Spirit was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame and personally kind of avoid a lot of Nirvana on this podcast because um, even though they're very, very important to the 90s here and the early 90s and the landscape of music, Nirvana, Kurt Cobain in particular, have just been beat to death. I mean, everybody talks about it. Everybody does a breakdown biography or, you know, talks about the last hours of and all this other stuff. So it's, I, I kind of depart from it because I feel like it's such a mainstream thing now that it's just not great for this type of show. But it's hard to really deny Nirvana's influence. And, and I've always kind of argued that to me, Nirvana is a lot more punk rock um, than on an alternative sound. I mean, it's really sloppy riffs, and that—that's I'm saying that as it's designed that way, not that it's an insulting thing. But it's very much a sloppy guitar. Very much reminds me of punk. Simple progressions, not overcomplicated. Thunderstrums in the background, but you know the lyrics are very meaningful. You know, a lot of double meanings to a lot of things. I think, you know, the poetry comes across. And this is just kind of a point where everyone's starting to realize that music is changing because Nirvana was just simply the voice of an entire generation who was coming up with these different types of ideas and thoughts and environmental situations. And they just simply... Wanted new music, something different, something meaningful, and something that meant something. And it, Nirvana really changes how rock and roll was viewed at the time. 
where record companies were going, where radio wanted to go, where audiences wanted to go. And it just becomes such a huge undertaking of an album. And so much so that uh, Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins thought about committing suicide after he heard Nirvana's Nevermind because he thought, that's it. This is the greatest album I've ever heard. And I can never do anything that's going to compete with this. And he actually fell into a very deep depression. But the fortunate part of that is two years later, we would get Siamese Dream, which many consider, including myself, one of the most perfect albums ever written. So Nirvana made everybody kind of up their game a little bit. And Nirvana was such a big deal, and Kurt Cobain was such a big deal, that basically, when he died in 1994, we see this angry movement of new metal come aboard. Because there was a sense of a generation being a little lost, and their John Lennon version of their John Lennon dies, and they get very confused, they're very angry, they're very lost. And the result of that is an aggressive new metal with corn and Limp Biscuit and all of these things starting to come into play, uh, starting to take over, and there's a lot of aggression. And we're going to do an episode on Woodstock 99 because there's a lot of talk about it. And we're going to do that because if you haven't seen the HBO documentary, you should. Even though I don't agree with a lot of the angles that were presented in that documentary, it is a very good documentary. And, you know, it's an expression of Kid Rock, Rage Against the Machine. You know, of course, Rage was coming along before Nirvana got hot. But this aggressive music uh, began to overtake young white males and, you know, middle class. That was Nirvana's territory. And so there was this void. That's how big Nirvana had gotten. There was just such a void there that once Nirvana was gone, there was a complete 180 change in the style of music and what people were beginning to want to buy. And radio began to kind of win the game again um, with producing, you know, new metal bands after bands after bands. And, you know, record companies go through that. Radio goes through that. But that's how big the void was at Kurt Cobain's suicide cost the generation was a complete 180 from insightfulness and eternal thought, deep, complex lyrics, well-written music, something people had never heard before, a, a movement of sorts to really, really a lot of aggression, which is why, honestly, you see this time period with Nirvana being a staple and really kind of Alice in Chains and all of these bands. And Pearl Jam goes through about three albums before. I'm not going to say they disappeared because your Pearl Jam fans will want to send me hate mail, but they do kind of fall off the radio a little bit more. And you do see a complete drop. In our minds, alternative music and grunge and all of this stuff lasted 10, 15 years. In reality, it was such a short period of time. I mean, 1991, when all these albums start to come out in full force, in 1994, you know, Kurt Cobain commits suicide. This is a point where a lot of the grunge and alternative music began to come off the radio a little bit more over the next year or two. And they're not as popular and big as they were. And that's because they're making room for the next thing, which is new metal. We see Korn's debut album comes out in 1994. Limb Biscuit's first album comes out in 1997. Their second album, which had a lot of major hits on it, comes out in 1999. So a lot of this aggressive new metal stuff is beginning to really take hold as soon as Kurt Cobain's basically exited the stage. 
which makes these albums in 1991 even more important, even more valid, because we see a complete shift in music in 89-90, and it runs about four to five years before it's gone, but it's one of the most memorable, one of the most historic times in music and pop culture. It, it was such a staple. It's, it's very, very hard to shake that. It, des- it deserves all due respect. Imagine a basically four to six year run of a certain musical style that changes the scope of, of music completely. And it's remembered by everyone who lived in that era, but it was only a four to six year period. That's pretty amazing. Altogether in 12 months, U2, Nirvana, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Soundgarden, Guns N' Roses, Ozzy Osbourne, Pearl Jam, Metallica, Skid Row, Van Halen, Smashin' Pumpkins, Queen, and R.E.M. release groundbreaking albums. Together, they sell 200 million albums worldwide. And of those 13 albums that we listed, five of them are in Rolling Stone's greatest albums of all time. Arguably... In this 12-month period, all of those bands release albums that are considered their greatest works. But wait, where's the fifth album on that list that we only covered four albums on the list that were in Rolling Stone's greatest albums of all time? A Tribe Called Quest low-end theory only sold 1.6 million albums, but itself sits on the list of greatest albums of all time, not to mention the other list the album sits in the list for rap. As of today, I can find it on 34 different greatest album lists. Out of the 200 million rock albums sold from 1991 alone, we also didn't even look at De La Salle's De La Salle is Dead, Primus Selling the Seas of Cheese, and Hole's album Pretty on the Inside. 1991 brought change to mainstream music, something that was brewing already with bands like the Pixies, who also released an album in 1991, one that people considered to be their best. And let's not forget Jane's Addiction leading the charge as well. If Jane's Addiction is a band leading the charge for alternative music towards mainstream, then they are promoting the full-on breakthrough with their farewell festival called Lollapalooza. That's right, also in 1991, Jane's Addiction had decided to break up, and their big farewell was a music festival tour. Lollapalooza took alternative and grunge into major, major radio play. In 1991, 200 million albums were sold. Five of the top-selling 13 albums are on Rolling Stone's top albums list. The other eight albums are on countless other greatest album lists by various music trade publications. The first touring festival of its own kind and years and years of amazing music also happened in this year. 1991 was a year of serious change, as these endearing albums changed social awareness and pop culture right in front of us. Sadly, it only lasted until about 1994 after the death of Kurt Cobain. Sadly, drug abuse all but killed grunge and alternative as well. A short four to six years is really all we got from the change in music. Bands like Alice in Chains succumbed to drug addiction, and many bands that did survive changed their sound as new metal was taking over in the late 1990s with bands like Korn and Limp Bizkit. By the time 1999 and Woodstock came along, many new metal bands were at the height before their downward spiral of overplay and immaturity, playing its toll on Generation X. Four short years lead to some of the worst times in pop music and a strange reversal of fortune, as meaningful rock music gave way to boy bands and pop musicians like Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Backstreet Boys, 
We went from social awareness to bubblegum pop to very angry frat guys breaking everything when Limp Bizkit played Break Stuff. By 2000, music had lost its identity and its inspiration. Record companies made their last stand as their profits from 1991 rolled in, and the almighty dollar once again controlled our environment and music. With alternative and grunge, we changed the landscape and told the radio what we wanted to listen to. But all we did was make the machine even stronger. Listen, guys, thanks so much for listening. This is a little different. I try to do more of a podcast instead of, I know it sounds really boring when I'm just going over things that I've kind of written down in notes. So I try to make this a little bit more podcasty where I'm being a little bit more freer with speaking with you. So let me know if it's a style that you like or you don't like. You know, you like the way I just kind of keep notes, keep everything straight and nice and documentary style, or you like me being a little bit more free spirited and talking with my own thoughts. So let me know. Uh, I appreciate everybody that's been listening to this podcast. There's a lot of people joining our Facebook page. Please do that. It's 21 years. So on Facebook, uh, there's not a ton going on there because this is a new podcast. It's kind of a startup. But we are posting a lot of things there. You'll get a copy of where uh, we post our podcast all the time. You also get kind of an advanced sneak peek of what we're going to be doing in the future, as well as some really cool old commercials, really cool old toys, really cool old sayings, just really neat things that are from the 80s and 90s. And if you're in that generation or you like Generation X um, era, this is a great page for you. So please be a part of that and go join. And uh, as always, I'd love to hear some feedback. Samwill2261 at gmail.com. Just let me know that you're writing me about the podcast and you know, you may even have something that you want to talk about. Maybe you were at Woodstock 99 and you'd like to answer some questions about it. Or maybe you went through a certain period of time in between 1980 and 2001 that you want to talk about. That's a big historical pop culture moment. But would love to hear from you. would love to do some interviews. Uh, still working on that interview for the <laughs> world's largest Karate Kid fan. And uh, actually, I'm going to see this guy this weekend. I'm very excited. He's one of my oldest friends. And uh, we're going to talk about the podcast coming up, so we'll run through some ideas. But if you want to be on here, please you know, let me know. I'm always up for interviews and talking about these things, and it's kind of a different format too. So I'm always looking for that. But guys, thank you so much for joining. Uh, 21 years of podcast. We've had a lot of fun here. Look for us. I'm, I'm going to be out of town, but look for an episode in not this week, not probably around next week. We might do Woodstock 99. That seems to be trending And unfortunately, in podcasting, you have to catch the wave of what's trending to kind of get some listeners. So we'll probably do Woodstock 99 and talk about that. I'll find some interesting fact about that that you may not know or is not popularly known, and we'll break that down. That's what I try to do. I try to find something unique and talk about it, and you guys hopefully respond nicely to it. So please share. Be a part of it. Uh, really helped to get this growing. It would mean a lot to me. As always, I do this for my kids so that they can one day go back and listen to how dad grew up. Boys, if you're listening and it's 20, you know, 80, (laughs) I love you. Thanks, everybody. Have a great night. Have a great week. We'll see you on the next episode of 21 Years. I'm Sam L. Dangeroso, Master of the Universe. We'll talk to you soon. Be well. Bye-bye.